in search of the greatest teams in business who are creating meaningful customer experiences. This is Heart of Business with Anthony Canada and L.B. Harvey. Welcome to the Heart of Business. My name is Anthony Canada. And I'm L.B. Harvey. And L.B., seemingly there's some good news on the horizon with COVID. It seems cases are, are going down here in, in Arizona. You know, I think we've, we've actually been open for quite some time, but we're seeing some more capacity in the hospitals. We're seeing just overall some positive traction. But I was excited to hear that California, since our last episode aired, has opened up uh, a little bit more, obviously safely, cautiously, but yeah. at least some restaurants are, are opening up. How's it been for you and in this sort of new kind of chapter in, in the pandemic journey? Like, how are you guys thinking about getting out there a little bit and, and getting back into the world? Yeah, AK, it's been really nice. And I was braced for a much longer period of lockdown in, in California. In fact, um, the, the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, had, had kind of extended the stay-at-home order indefinitely. And um, when I pulsed uh, one of my good friends who's connected in the kind of restaurant industry, she thought that restaurants were going to open back up until like March, best case scenario. So mm. it came as a really pleasant surprise that things are starting to open up here at the start of February. The reality is a lot of places are going to need a couple of weeks to get staffing back in order and restock their pantries on the on the restaurant side. And I think also just like come up with the right protocols and, and safe way to reopen. Um, right. So it still feels pretty locked down here, but it's definitely a, a positive trend. Interestingly enough, I was reading in the New York Times this morning that 30% of Americans are planning on attending Super Bowl parties. And while I'm very excited about the Super Bowl, to me, that was like a parallel universe moment yeah. just to juxtapose with the, the scene here in California and San Francisco specifically. Yeah, totally. And you know, I think we've all, I think, had to battle this for the holidays and figure out how do we safely engage or not engage and make some of those personal decisions. But I feel like that's a lot more complex than the Super Bowl, which is a game we can watch on TV alone or whatever. And again, maybe I'm just an anti-Tom uh, Brady person, whoever an anti-fan is. Is that a word, an anti-fan? We'll go with it. Man's just too good. You know, to me, like the you know, Super Bowl is something you could pass on, not to not to virtue signal, but public health kind of stands to, to benefit from folks kind of watching this remotely. Yeah, I, I agree. The other big news from this week, LB, was about the stock market. Stocks. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think I saw something about a company called GameStop. That's right. And uh, for those that have been following this, there was a community on Reddit called Wall Street Bets that apparently did something with investing in some of these perhaps undervalued stocks, stocks that have been hit hard in the pandemic and really tried to to help drive some, I believe, send them to the moon is the words that they used uh, in order to uh, drive some return. Now, I'll admit, LB, this whole thing's been confusing to me. I'm a, I'm a marketer. I'm a creative uh, when it comes to stocks and finances. It's not my strong suit. Have you really processed this? Can you explain this to me so I, I can make sure I'm understanding exactly what happened? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, I, I, I love the, the stock market, but I, I turn to others to, um, make any key decisions for me. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of at the headline level, to be honest, we may need to call, call someone else in here to explain. Well, in that case, it's time for a new segment called, we don't know. We don't know.
for we don't know, we've brought in our producer, Matt Clausen, to tell us a little bit more about what exactly happened last week and how does this whole thing relate to the heart of business? So it's good to be here. Um, wish I was talking about something a little bit more interesting than, you know, the stock market. <laughs> I think that there's a lot to talk about here. I'll try and give the abridged version. First of all, what do you know about short selling? Short selling. Insert um, chirping sound. <laughs> so I think short selling is where like a hedge fund will buy up stock and then sell it off. Yeah. I don't know. You're betting on the failure of a yeah, company, you're right? You're betting the company is like overvalued. And so you're betting that's going to come down. Yeah, pretty much. So these hedge funds will borrow stocks, essentially. They'll sell them expecting them to devalue over time over a short or long period of time, buy them back at a lower price, pocket the difference, and then give the stock back to whoever they borrowed it from. Essentially, what it's doing is basically betting that a company, whatever you're investing in, is going to be worth less over time. And that's what a lot of these hedge funds did to a company called GameStop, a brick and mortar company that sells video games mostly um, in stores across the country. So what happened at the end of the month, at the end of January, was this thread on reddit.com slash wallstreetbets went viral. And it was all about buying up this GameStop stock and uh, you know, essentially putting the value of it through the roof. So that when these hedge funds went around to buy back the stock that they had sold off, expecting it to be devalued over time, that they would have to be they would have to buy it back for way more than they sold it for, essentially putting them underwater. And that's what happened to a lot of these hedge funds, because as this thread went viral over time, hundreds of thousands of people were buying up this stock in Robinhood, which is a free-to-use app that allows people to make trades in the stock market without transaction fees. And essentially, at least one of these hedge funds lost over a billion dollars and had to get bailed out. And so it started this whole conversation about, you know, What's the true value of these stocks if a hedge fund can devalue it by short selling and this large public movement can pump the tires on it and make it worth something uh, just by the act of buying it? What's the real value of GameStop stock? I mean, it's a brick and mortar store that sells video games when people are downloading them overwhelmingly. But, you know, the flip side of that is that GameStop also has investment from the guy from the big short who is played by Christian Bale. And also the CEO of the pet uh, online pet store Chewy has a big stake in GameStop. So, you know, was were these short sellers really undervaluing it, or were these redditors actually closer to uh, the the mark on what the stock is actually worth? Of course, it all got way out of control and <laughs> sent Robinhood into a death spiral. Overnight, they had to borrow over a billion dollars just to cover the volatility of these stocks and. They had to shut down trading on like GameStop, AMC, uh, some of these other ones that Reddit had just created a feeding frenzy around. And that did not make those Redditors happy. And uh, Google at some point was removing one star reviews from the Robinhood app. And so there's a lot of the debate around is Robinhood, you know, free trading, uh, democratizing the stock market? Is Reddit slash Wall Street Bets opening up this like previously gate kept? Um, source of wealth to a larger market? And if so, is that really good? 
Like, is it is it really good that some people made billions of dollars, some hedge funds lost billions of dollars, and most people put ten dollars into GameStop stock and probably will never get it back? You know, GameStop is decreasing now as we're recording this. So it's a it's a crazy debate with a lot of different sides and a lot of people passionate on all sides. I tend to think that access to this investment is really good, but it doesn't make the stock market itself any less equitable, and it doesn't decrease income inequality, at least not without better guardrails in it. So that's the whole issue explained as, as quick as I can get it and as close as I can get it to the truth. That's awesome, Matt. Thanks for, for walking us through it. Obviously, this is super complex. Uh, but one of the big takeaways that, that I have from this is Robinhood really found themselves in a bit of a crisis here, a crisis against the brand uh, purpose that they've kind of put out into the world of really trying to make investing in the stock market more inclusive, less of a black box or a invite-only type of community for, for some people in our, uh, in our world. But at the same time, by taking this action, they've sort of gone against their customers and sort of made a decision that, you know, who knows kind of whether or not they were forced into that, but at the end of the day, made a decision that compromised the heart of their business, which is, which is obviously their customers. There was even some notes leaked from employees I saw on social media and who knows if these things are all true, but talking about the same about like, this is, you know, this is a very kind of trying time for the company from a culture and values perspective. So I think the big lesson here, and I'll be love to hear your thoughts is, needing to sort of stand by your purpose and stand by your your reason for being as a company not just when things are good but even when things are prickly or complex or, or pretty pretty difficult and that sort of expectation that our customers and our employees have on us being able to to have that conviction in in good times and bad yeah i think this is an example where robinhood may have gone a step too far in their brand promise and um, the reality is that they have certain institutions that they are playing within those sort of like limitations and rules. That is, that's the reality. And so when you have a, a mission statement all around bringing the ability to trade to the kind of common person, I think this is a perfect example of that not being perfectly true and it really backfiring for Robinhood. All right. It's time for one of my favorite segments, Heartbeats. All right. So for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, Heartbeats is our segment where we talk about the good news coming out of the business world. When you refresh your newsfeed in today's environment, most of the news isn't great, but we are focused in this segment on finding those silver lining good news stories where businesses are going out of their way to get creative, pivoting, innovating, and delivering great things for their customers. That's right. And so the first piece of news that we're talking about came out of a company called Cloudflare, who have sort of been in the they're in the business of like web reliability and ensuring uh, performance and security of web pages. And they wanted to jump into the fight against COVID by really helping companies and health providers and whether it's state departments or or private folks who are providing vaccine registration sites to build more reliable sites through their Project Fairshot initiative. So for for those that have had a chance to register for a vaccine, you, you'll know almost undoubtedly that website reliability has been tough to register. Sites have crashed just with the traffic that has been hitting these things. And so Cloudflare took it upon themselves to build a initiative that gave frontline organizations the technical resources they need to be reliable 
and to meet the demands of the market. So I'll be, I know vaccines are something that you've been watching very closely here. So tell me a little bit more about what you make of both Project Fairshot, but also like what's been going on and, and progress in the vaccine world. Yeah, this is really, this is a cool story and props to Cloudflare for figuring out a way to get involved in uh, the fight against COVID and specifically the rollout of vaccines. I think so many of us um, in the business world would love to lean in and help and they found a great angle and a way to do so. So um, this was a really, really cool article. As you mentioned, I have been tracking the vaccine news uh, pretty closely. I am very excited to get back to uh, real life, hopefully in the second half of 2021. 2022 latest. And I've been following an author called David Leonhardt out of the New York Times that is is putting out some really interesting content around kind of finding the signal through the noise. I think there's a lot of information out there on the vaccines and a lot of it is really kind of tamping down optimism. And he takes a very cool angle um, and one that really resonates with me, which is that the vaccine news is actually a lot more optimistic than it's often reported. And I'll give a kind of a specific example of that. I recently became a little discouraged uh, because I was really excited about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine hitting the, the market or, or GA um, and thinking that'd be a great way for us to, you know, essentially produce more vaccines and get to more people. Um, but I was disheartened to see that it was only like 60, 70 percent effective. And my first reaction was like, I would rather just wait for the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine, which is like 90, 95% effective, right? But when you dig in, efficacy really just means that if you got the vaccine, you show no symptoms. And uh, David Leinhart's kind of point of view is, look, what you really should care about is how many serious illnesses or, or deaths um, were caused by people who were vaccinated. Like that's kind of the efficacy that you really care about. And Johnson and Johnson's performed really well. Very few people who've gotten the vaccine have gotten, you know, seriously ill. And so a lot of the efficacy rate that's being reported is people who got very mild symptoms. And I think we would all say, sure, we'd love to avoid even light symptoms um, and feel 100% healthy all the time. But in the vein of ending this pandemic and getting life back to some semblance of normalcy, what we really care about is is removing COVID-19 as a serious threat to our health and, you know, kind of an escalating cause of death. Totally. I totally agree with that. We got time for one more LB. And so uh, my favorite heartbeats news always comes from TikTok. And so... (laughs) Jimmy Choi. How many TikTok <laughs> videos do you have out there in the world? You know what's funny? Zero, actually. Okay. I don't even I don't even have a TikTok account, but every time I see the words TikTok uh, and I get a chance to use them in the business context, I get very happy. I, I think this should be a Q1 OKR. Exactly, an, exactly. An Anthony TikTok video. Totally. I will all work on it. Thankfully, someone named Jimmy Choi is already much better and more established at TikToks. Uh, he creates a ton of like, high level, like athletic, uh, videos and has built a good following around, you know, basically extreme type of sports and weightlifting and all these types of things. Yep. Uh, he recently posted a pretty vulnerable post where, uh, this facade that he shows the rest of the world isn't the whole story, uh, because Jimmy actually suffers from Parkinson's disease. Um, obviously a, a central nervous system disorder that causes tremors. And so he started to post pretty often about life kind of with the living with the disease and how he may be able to like lift these weights and do all these things, but sometimes some of life's easiest uh, or seemingly easiest tasks, like opening up a bottle of pills to take your medicine or putting your button on on your shirt are a lot more complex for all those obviously suffering from, from this horrible disease. And so the good news in this story is as he posted, there's apparently a 3D printmaker community on TikTok that watched it. 
Okay. They, they latched on to this idea and they actually put together and engineered a pill bottle that's specifically designed for folks who are battling Parkinson's or have kind of severe tremors. And they've actually 3D printed it and brought it to market. And it's now going to be available for, for use and for distribution out into the world. So for those that are, are short on TikTok, uh, don't underestimate the power of a community who's willing to latch on to a story and help build solutions uh, for the greater good. Yeah, that is so cool. I can only imagine the frustration of not being able to like do something as seemingly simple as opening yeah. a, a bottle of pills. So that is really cool. And it's, you know, it's interesting. This is just kind of the second news story we've talked about that involves crowdsourcing. So there's, yes, you know, totally, totally. All right. Well, let's talk about this week's interview. I'm so excited to, to share this story. This was actually a really, really good conversation. Uh, and it started when I was scrolling through my Twitter feed over the holidays. Uh, and I came across a thread that honestly, I'll be, it hit me right in the feelings. Was it Bean Dad? Close. Uh, <laughs> no, it was. It was a thread from a CEO uh, of a company called Zeus Living called Veer Tagger. Okay. And honestly, it was such an open, honest, vulnerable look into um, his journey and his company's journey through the pandemic. And it was so moving and inspiring. I thought, look, I'd love to get Call Veer on the podcast if we can have him. And guess what? Did you get him on the podcast? Yes. Great guess. <laughs> I talked to Call Veer and it was just as candid and vulnerable as a thread on Twitter which honestly sometimes can be a, a pretty rare quality in a CEO. So let's go ahead and take a listen at the conversation with Kulveer Tagger, CEO of Zeus Living. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where it felt like the wheels were coming off, where your whole world felt like it was hanging from a thread and you can see it fraying almost in slow motion before your eyes. I think 2020 gave us way too many of these moments. And for so many, that thread didn't hold. However, my guest today is Kalvir Tagar. He's the CEO of Zeus Living. And he faced just such a moment last year. And I read about it in a now viral thread on Twitter, uh, which read almost like reading the book of Job or something as I was kind of going through it. Even though I, I sort of knew the ending and kind of understanding Zeus's business and the story kind of since, it was a really emotional read and kind of took me back to you know different places in my life. And so I won't steal the thunder here for Colvier. I'll let, I'll let him tell us the story. So Colvier, thank you so much for joining us today and for kind of sharing uh, your experience with 2020. It's my pleasure. And thank you for having me on. Awesome. So we have a, a segment that we like to kick off with called the weird question of the week. So this question, uh, I know that I understand you're a Manchester United fan. Mm -hmm. Congrats, by the way. I think as we're recording this today, they're at the, the top of the table. There are three former Red Devil stars who famously made the move to America to play in the MLS. We got Wayne Rooney, uh, Dave Beckham, and Zlatan Ibrahimovic, my personal favorite. If you have to be stuck in quarantine with any one of those three, who would it be? Ooh, I think in quarantine, I'd probably want to be stuck with Zlatan. Uh, <laughs> I think he would be the most entertaining probably have the most interesting stories to tell. Uh, yeah, it just seems like a lot of fun. Totally. totally. I think I'd, I'd answer the same way. All right. So let's, uh, let's dive into this. Can you uh, start by just telling us a little bit more about Zeus Living really before the pandemic? So back in December of 2019, 
What what did your business look like? And just tell us a little bit about the offering and just who, who you're serving. Sure. So uh, to start with, you know, our product, uh, we provide beautiful furnished homes that are flexible so people can rent them for, you know, six weeks or six months. Um, our product is tailored towards people who are moving around the country um, or they have to go somewhere because they've got some sort of work project. And we'd started in um, around 2015, 2016, and we'd basically been growing three to four X year over year. And in 2019, December, we had just announced our Series B fundraise, 55 million. Um, you know, Airbnb was an investor in that. And we were really setting ourselves up for having a blockbuster 2020. We made a lot of investments into expanding into markets like New York and all these other metros around the country. We'd hired a lot of people. I'd built out my executive team. And for those familiar with sort of startup lingo, we were in that blitz scaling phase where we're like, okay, we have product market fit. This thing works. We just want to really ramp this as quick as possible. So for, uh, shifting from that to what happened a few months later was like a very big transition. Well, let's talk about that. You know, what was it like when you guys first realized coming out of that December that something's going on here and whatever this is has, you know, the potential to be pretty catastrophic to our business model? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it was in January when the Wuhan lockdown first happened or the original lockdown that I had started to think about it and become worried that this thing isn't under control. It could spread to the US if it does a business model our business will be impacted. And, you know, then as we got into February, there was still so much uncertainty uh, about how to react to this. I myself was feeling quite stressed, but even though, you know, I was aware of the situation and what could happen, I was still very, very surprised and shocked by how quickly things escalated in March. And I remember, you know, the first things that were happening were these conferences getting canceled. And we, we were meant to go to South by Southwest. Uh, last year, and we had this panel set up. And I remember when that conference was cancelled, and then just hearing around me that trips were getting um, cancelled, that didn't immediately impact us at the beginning, because again, uh, people don't really use Zeus for short term business trips or like, you know, just weekend travel. Right. But it was around the middle of the month when the international travel was halted, that we started seeing cancellations. And about a third of our businesses you know, people coming to the US. And when those cancellations started, uh, the stock market crashed. That's when uh, it became very clear to me that, you know, this is a scary situation we're going into. And, um, you know, we have to like, really pay attention now and be careful about what happens. And, you know, in, in the tweet storm, I had mentioned, um, and you talk about Airbnb being an investor, you talked about Brian Chesky, who for those listening that don't know is the founder, CEO of Airbnb. That he gave you some advice around you can either make a business decision and do what's best for the business, or you can make a principal decision and consider how do you want to be remembered irrespective of the outcome. When those cancellations started coming in, as you mentioned, what was it like making the decision to handle it, the kind of way you handled it? And can you just reflect a bit on the leaning on the principal decision advice? Yeah. So we, you know, we started getting requests for refunds and these you know it wasn't small amounts this was millions of dollars and um into the summer like business contracts where people had expressed that they wanted you know a certain amount of homes we'd gone and got those homes and prepared them and everything and really we're just faced with what do we do because under our terms 
with our cancellation policy, you know, maybe we could hold on to a bunch of that money or not. But then I was just thinking of the situation that these other businesses were in where, you know, they were spending money, they could no longer travel. And when I was just looking at our balance sheet and how much cash we had, if I was to give away or give back all of this money, we were going to be putting ourselves under sort of immediate and, you know, quite severe financial stress. So I remember when we were just thinking about it and I was like, you know, one of my principles is this idea of thinking long-term and just having a long horizon. And at that moment, I was like, wait a second, the relationship I have with my customers is more important. This is going to be painful, but we'll find a way through. And then, you know, hopefully when the world is better and these guys can travel again, you know, they'll come back to Zeus. So we made the call that like, we're going to be as customer centric as possible. Um, you know, refund as much of this money as, as people ask for and then figure it out later. That's incredible. How did the customers sort of respond to that? Because I imagine from their perspective, this is pretty scary stuff. They have a lot of budget kind of tied into this event, this move. Many of them had planned to relocate. I imagine kind of that empathy, the customer empathy was was rather well received. I'm I'm curious, what was the customer response? And then how did the team feel on the front lines of really delivering that relief to the customer? Yeah, I remember receiving emails or seeing some emails from customers who were like, we appreciate this so much. Our plans have changed. You know, there's also just a, you know, kind of a safety angle to this as well. It's like yeah. people don't want to be forced to travel in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> and so there was just a lot of gratitude. And I, I did receive messages where customers said, as soon as it's safe to travel again, we'll be back. We will be using awesome. you. We won't forget this. And I think, you know, within the company as well, being customer centric is one of our core values. And I've always framed values in terms of trade-offs. You know, what are we willing to give up to live up to this value? And the example I would often cite internally was profits. You know, if, to do the right thing by the customer, we are willing to forego profit. And so uh, the team was supportive and, you know, it was the right thing to do. And again, it was, um, it was a very different experience because just, you know, our daily revenue or net bookings have, has always tended to be up and to the right. And then we entered this territory where it was basically negative and negative for quite a while. And then it was a little bit of when is this going to end or how bad is this going to get? Because again, in March or April, maybe this sounds naive in hindsight, I didn't think the pandemic was going to be as devastating and as widespread as it turned out to be. I almost, I remember thinking, oh, by July, maybe by August, you know, travel's going to happen again. So this is a three to four month thing. Uh, but yeah, again, was surprised to the downside by the impact. Totally. And um, gosh, I think if the story ended there, you know, that would be one thing. But in addition to all of this, you know, you guys were forced, like obviously many businesses were during this really trying time to do layoffs twice. And completely tragically, your, your co-founder's wife had, was diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, thankfully for, for those listening, sounds like she, you know, she's in remission. But going through all of this, this takes such an emotional toll on, I'd imagine yourself as the, as the CEO, let alone on the company. What did you learn about kind of how, how to communicate with your team during a time that's so trying and, and where perhaps even yourself, you know, struggling, but needing to kind of put that leadership had on and kind of carry forward? You know, transparency is also one of our company values. And again, you know, when I talk about those trade-offs, it's like sometimes it can just be very uncomfortable to share all the sort of raw truths with everyone. Um, and actually, this was a big lesson learned because 
we had been creeping towards being less transparent in the company with certain things as we had scaled, just because there was this thought of like, hey, you know, if you don't have the full context, you know, these numbers or this data, it's kind of harder to understand it. But when the pandemic hit, we decided that um, we're going to really lean into it. And then so we just kind of opened up everything, our daily cash balance to anyone who wanted to know in the company, you know, obviously the revenue numbers, occupancy numbers, those things, the way we've built our internal software, it's all accessible to everyone anyway. But uh, we really leaned into that to bring everyone together to help us get through. Because again, you know, my underlying sort of rationale for that is if you have access to all the information, the chances that you're going to make the right decision go up. And, you know, this was a team effort for sure. And I wanted everyone to feel like we trusted them and, and they had responsibility as well. I mean, on the micro level with the leadership team, we set up daily meetings and we just, we, we identified, you know, the one metric we needed to focus on. In our case, it was occupancy was the very first thing because it was just, you know, plummeting. We'd never really been below 85-ish percent occupancy. And right, I think in April, we dipped as low as 40. Wow. We recovered it to 65% by the end of the month. But that was the one that every night we got together, we spoke for an hour or two. And of course, we had to discuss layoffs. There were things that we had to do to you know, keep the company alive. And again, you know, I, didn't, I don't have experience of doing layoffs. We had to do them on Zoom. That was unpleasant. Um, and so it was just a very tough time. Um, you know, on so many fronts. And then, of course, you mentioned uh, my co-founder's wife situation. That was a moment that sticks in the memory because it was after we'd done the second layoffs. You know, we had this emotional goodbye on Zoom. I became a bit teary, which I wasn't expecting. And I was really worried about all these people that we were laying off into the middle of a pandemic and what would happen for them. And then, you know, my, I get this phone call and he's just like, she became very sick this week, taken her to the hospital. There you know, uh, admitting her straight away. And she has this aggressive form of cancer. And immediately I was like, whoa, I'm really upset and really sad about what's happening in the company. But this kind of just put things into perspective where I was like, you know, I, I still have my health, we have our health and I need to support him now and, you know, do the best we can to help her in her recovery. And um, so, yeah, it was, it, it was this interesting period and um, grateful to Stanford because that's where she got treatment and she ended up getting a stem cell transplant and is in remission now. So things are much better there. Uh, but yeah, it was just this very challenging period. But I think the transparency and being customer centric and then just rallying everyone, you know, daily helped us get through it. That's incredibly powerful. Gosh, I, we obviously wish her the best you know, as, she, as she kind of recovers. At some point here, uh, you realize that you know, and kind of referencing back to the tweet storm, that there there was there was a potential opportunity here to build back stronger. And I think, from my understanding, is uh, you you start noticing that people were looking for places to go work remotely. Because obviously, as part of you know, so many of us that lived in kind of urban kind of cities or what have you, there was a chance to now get out of our quarantine kind of situation and potentially go quarantine somewhere else um, and work in another city. And so. Places like Miami and Denver, there seemed to be some demand for folks looking for housing. Can you talk a little bit about that moment? Because it feels like it was a bit of a either a turning point or just kind of a bit of a, a spark to kind of come come out of some place that was obviously so trying and dismal and offer now some hope moving forward. The I remember it was in LA that we saw demand really increase pretty early into the pandemic. And occupancy within that market, I think, approached 90% very quickly. 
Wow. And I was like, huh, what's going on here? And then we just saw that people, you know, thankfully the homes that we have, they tend to be in the suburbs. We don't concentrate too much in sort of downtown centers. And we have homes with backyards and, you know, more space. So that was the very first thing that we saw. And I was like, you know, some of it just felt lucky. We're like, okay, we had homes in the right places. People want to go there. LA took off. And then we started um, seeing, you know, the occupancy creep up across the place. But when we were looking at where people were searching on Zeus and how the search patterns were changing, even though at that time we didn't have any homes in Miami, for example, we saw lots of people start searching on Miami. And then these other markets, like you mentioned, like Denver uh, uh, and Austin. And then, you know, we, within our own company, we'd gone fully remote. Some of our employees were, you know, people were going back to the East Coast if they were from there or using this as a chance to just explore uh, living in different parts of the country. And so we realized that, okay, this might be, you know, kind of a, a glimmer of hope um, that on the one hand, the business travel was massively reduced, but on the other hand, we were seeing these new forms of demand. And actually, you know, this, this was maybe closer to our original founding vision, which is we wanted to make it easy for people to live wherever and whenever they wanted, you know, free from the traditional constraints of housing, of, you know, signing a 12 month lease or having to buy furniture. And so we, we, we rallied around this and we, 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 did a, we did our research, we looked at the numbers and we realized there was a, um, a $40 million opportunity to find um, the right product for our customers in these other markets if we could figure that out. A lot of companies similar to ours were being hurt in the pandemic. You know, we'd heard occupancy had dropped to single digits or low teens, and it was especially the sort of short-term rental companies. So then we were like, well, look, we have expertise in the 30-day-plus market where our occupancy is back up to 85%. We're, we're seeing excess demand in certain markets. We're seeing demand in markets that we're not in. Why don't we reach out to these other operators and see if we can connect our demand to their supply and, you know, it's a win-win for everyone. And again, this was like a big shift in our sort of internal mentality because we'd always been the operator of our homes because we really built, believed in, you know, building a certain experience and building our own brand. You know, it worked. And again, that was one of these surprising moments where I was like, okay, people are coming to Zeus. They're willing to trust our curation, our expertise to book with a partner that we've found in Miami and, you know, do the transaction. And so. Um, you know, we still wanted to find a way to grow in 2020. And thankfully, because of this, you know, let's call it uh, a bit of a pivot, we were able to do that. And so we started, I think, 2020 with about 2,000 homes on the platform. We ended the year with 4,000 homes on the platform. And we still found a way to grow revenue um, during this period. And it, it's still sort of consistent with our mission and, and our vision because we have a job to do for our residents, which is provide them with high quality homes. And we found a way to sort of do that during the pandemic. That's incredible. And, and that vision that you stated, like, live without the traditional constraints of, of housing is super powerful. Uh, you mentioned that this was um, perhaps closer to that original vision now, like, or at least sort of a, a, a forcing function to really put that in motion. Was that something that was a, a rallying call internally? Or how did the team uh, kind of get encouraged throughout that process? Growing up, my mom was a travel agent. Uh, I grew up in a single parent household. I got to travel a lot. My mom would get these cheap tickets. And I remember growing up, I had this goal of owning real estate in you know a few of the major cities around the world, 
let's say New York, San Francisco, London, and others, but not really because I wanted to build a, a real estate empire. It was just this idea of having that mobility and that flexibility. If I wanted to go to Europe for the summer, you know, uh, I could do that if I wanted to go, you know, between the coasts. And I've been on this long journey, but that's what we were building at Zeus. And we'd focused on business travel as our sort of entry segment into the market because that's where we just saw a high value customer with a pressing problem. So people in the company knew about this mission and this vision of just giving people more flexibility and more mobility. And originally I used to talk to talk about it in terms of opportunity. You know, my life changed when I moved to San Francisco. So I was like, let's just make it easy for people to move to wherever opportunity may take them. But then after the pandemic, we were like, well, it doesn't actually have to be about the opportunity can just be because you want to be there and you want to try something different and a new lifestyle. So um, a lot of people in the company, they resonated with this mission and this vision. That's why they joined Zeus. I definitely had some questions about the change in strategy, but largely I would say everyone bought in because that's what they wanted to do themselves. And a lot of people would take advantage of that. And pre-pandemic, we had a policy of you know, folks could relocate to any any of the cities that we operate in. And so we tried to offer that mobility ourselves. And yeah, and then once it started working, of course, that helped. That's amazing. Uh, and uh, I deeply resonate with that uh, mission myself. So, you know, excited that companies like Zeus exist to go in and kind of make that reality happen for for the rest of us as consumers. You know, finally, I'll, just on this topic, you, you said you kept a, a Ganesha a Daruma doll on your desk and you really leaned on your, your five-minute journal for affirmation during this time. I'm just curious, just on a personal level, kind of going through a year like this and obviously the, the exciting kind of rebound and, and finding the growth through it. How, how did you care for your own kind of mental health through this? And for folks that are, you know, perhaps listening, and they're still kind of in the thick of kind of figure out what their pivot is, kind of any, any encouragement or recommendations that you have for self-care uh, for those folks? You know, I do heavily recommend the five-minute journal. Um, you know, you write down things you're grateful for each morning. Uh, an affirmation, how you plan to have a great day. And then you check in at night just before you go to bed. And it's one of these things that if I forget to do it and a few days or a week or two go, goes by, I start feeling it and I'm like, huh. And there's just something so grounding where, you know, again, I'm in a safe situation. I have my health. Um, you know, I have my friends and there's still so much that's positive in, in the world around me, despite the sort of a disaster that was kind of happening in the business, it, it just helped me stay a little bit more grounded. Um, I, I don't want to lie, the second half of March into early April was just tough. Every morning I'd wake up and there was just a little bit of dread of like, okay, what's the bad news that I'm going to encounter today? And uh, I've never sort of counted down the hours when I've worked um, as a CEO because I, I, I love building building the business and executing on our mission. But there were days where I was like, okay, it's two o'clock. All right, now it's three o'clock. All right, and just uh, when is this day going to end? And then, you know, try to stay somewhat active, go for walks in the evening with my wife and, um, you know, try and focus on the positives. When you mentioned earlier, I'm a fan of soccer. When the Premier League restarted, that was a nice distraction that I had. I was like, okay, it's, it's kind of ridiculous and not important in the bigger scheme of things, but I really enjoy this and I can escape, you know, the day to day for a little bit. That was um, a big support. and. Um, I, I haven't shared this before, but there was one night where I went to bed thinking, you know, we weren't going to make it through. And I had these moments of thinking about when we first started Zeus, 
I spent months like driving around and meeting hundreds of homeowners around the Bay Area. And I remember the first few homes, you know, I furnished them myself with the help of my my wife and uh, just all of these extra meetings you do when you're trying to get your company started. And I was like, oh my God, this all might go to zero. And feeling kind of, um, I don't know, sad about it, maybe a little bit sorry for myself. But then I remember again in the morning I woke up, I had that belief and I don't know where the belief came from. I was like, no, we're going to get through this. It's up to us. Like engage mind, be creative. Let's figure out some solutions. Yeah. And then, you know, a little bit of superstition kicked in. Uh, I'm not really religious, but just those little things um, surrounding themselves. I was like, okay, I've got, I've got some other, other help here as well. That's incredible. Kalvir, uh, and, and thanks so much for really transparently sharing this. Uh, you know, I think it started on Twitter and, and other places, but um, just hearing your stories has really been moving. And I think uh, for, for folks listening that are, as I mentioned, either still going through this challenge of, of 2020, you know, it offers just, just a, a lot of hope. So thanks for, for sharing it. Uh, we do have one final segment to, to close things out. We call it Speed Round. So I'm going to ask a few questions here and you have five seconds or less to answer each question. Great. Yeah. So first question, what's the best book you've read recently? It's a book called The Courage to be Disliked. Awesome. Uh, your favorite podcast other than this one, of course. Um, I'm a fan of Invest Like the Best. Also check that one out. Uh, oh, this is actually quite perhaps controversial, like work from home or work from the office. I'm actually going to say hybrid. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. There's where we, we saw an uptick in productivity being work from home, uh, but I definitely think there are some positives to being able to collaborate together. And with Zeus, home can be in many different places. So that's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, the favorite gift you gave or received this year? Yeah, I, uh, I have two young nieces um, that live in Vancouver. They're big fans of music. They love singing and dancing. And so uh, for Christmas, I got them a HomePod. Um, awesome. And they were over the moon with that. That's great. And the last question, uh, what's a brand out there in the marketplace that you admire the most? Yeah, so um, hopefully this isn't too on the nose and I know I'm on the Front podcast. Um, <laughs> but uh, Front this year, Mathilde reached out to me March 13th, unprompted to check in on how I was doing. And she, uh, the gesture just meant a lot because we use the product for a lot of our teams. And, um, you know, we exchanged some emails. She was very supportive during that time. And so I'm a big fan of the, uh, the Front brand. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for saying that. And likewise, we're fans of, of, of Zeus and honestly, Calvary, wish you all nothing but success. And we look forward to hearing just amazing things from, from Zeus moving forward. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. You're listening to Heart of Business. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Now back to the show. What an incredible, incredible story. LB, I'm really excited to hear your last word. LB's last word. AK, I loved this interview, and I think there were a couple of big themes that stood out for me. Um, the first one is when times get tough, it's a great chance to get back to your vision and your values. When things are going really well at a high growth business like Zeus, I think it's easy just to double down on what's working. But what I loved about this story is that when 
they hit some hard times, they were able to get back closer to the founding uh, vision of the company, which was really essentially um, to be uh, able to allow people to work and live wherever they wanted to, not just London or New York. Um, And I think it's a great lesson for companies um, in the good times and the bad times. If you center your strategy around your founding vision, good things will happen. The second is get back to your values as well. And I loved when Colvier said that, you know, you have to really understand what you're willing to give up to live up to your values. For me, one of the things that really stood out was that Zeus was willing to give up some short-term profits in order to be customer-centric. And I think that's going to serve them really well in the long run. Um, And finally, we here at Front gravitate towards uh, commitment to transparency. It's one of our big company values, and I I really feel like it seeds a lot of what we do. And you could just really see that come through and how uh, vulnerable Colvier was during the interview. And it's so easy to creep away from this as you grow and you become more successful as a business. And it was really cool just to see how, you know, raw, transparent and vulnerable um, he was throughout that. Totally, totally agree with you, LB. Well, look, that's all for this episode. So for everyone listening, thank you so much. Remember to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or honestly, wherever you listen to podcasts, if you enjoyed the show. And please leave us a rating and review. You know, we, we really appreciate it and would love to keep bringing this uh, episode and these shows to you moving forward. And as a reminder, you can follow the Heart of Business podcast, as well as other great stories of how teams and customers are working together to make missions possible by subscribing to FrontPage, the editorial site we've recently launched for founders, executives, and customer-facing teams. Follow us on Twitter at FrontApp or by going to frontapp.com backslash blog. See you next time. Heart of Business is a Front Page production brought to you by Front, the leader in customer communication. Front Page is the trusted resource for leaders who believe in the impact of meaningful connections with customers. You can find more inspiring stories at frontapp.com slash blog or on Twitter at FrontApp. And don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Heart of Business.